Podcast. It's the podcast about the media, politics, and the politics of the media. I'm Tom Mills, at TA underscore Mills on Twitter, if you want to follow me. And I'm joined by Dan Hind. Hello, Dan. Hi, Tom. How's it going? Yeah, pretty good, pretty good. Uh, Dan is um, at Dan Hind on Twitter, aren't you? That's right, yeah. And uh, if you want to follow the show, you can find us at Media Democrat on Twitter. And we're brought to you by The Media Fund, which is at The Media Fund on Twitter. Very good. So, Dan, uh, what's caught your eye this week, then? Well, you know, there's been, uh, there's been no shortage of news, as they say. Um, there's been uh, this, these rather extraordinary events in Charlottesville and the President's response. Um, we've also obviously had this um, terror attack in Barcelona. Um, I think the standout media political story in the UK has been the um, fallout from Sarah Champion's article in The Sun last week on um, grooming gangs in uh, uh, Rochdale, Newcastle and elsewhere. And the, as I said, there's been, um, there's been something of a, um, of, of a to and fro from that, which I think we'll talk about in a bit of detail over the course of the show. And it, it, it knits together quite neatly with something that we were planning to do anyway, which was to take a, um, a week-long look at uh, the Sun newspaper. And it's something that we'll do with other newspapers uh, throughout the rest of the year. But we thought we'd start with the Sun, it being August, so yep. sort of, um, high summer season. Um, and Weekend of Sun. Exactly, yeah, the Soraway Sun, um, the sizzling, sizzling English summer, and um, so that's where I think um, a lot of the um, a lot of the sort of media political uh, sound and fury has really uh, has really been directed in the UK, and I think it would be useful. Yeah, well coincided with our little experiment. Well, right, and I, I think it's early to talk about the curse of the podcast, but every time we. Uh, turn our attention to something it seems to um to sort of start melting so um Noted. so we'll have to uh we'll have to see if we can set up some sort of protection racket where we we don't cover things so <laughs> they don't um fall apart um so what we thought we'd do on the show today would be um to talk a bit about um the the sun as a historical um uh phenomenon talk a bit about its origins and its history, um, and then go on to talk a bit about um, really the kind of the habit of buying a newspaper. Like, um, this week has been the first first time for at least a decade I've thought that I've bought a newspaper four days in a row. Um, yeah, same. Yeah, so I think there's an interesting sense that it's a habit that is fading away without anyone really... N- noting it, I mean, obviously circulations are falling, um, and we're aware of that. And actually, the, the declines are endlessly surprising. In fact, and, and how steep they are. Um, we were looking earlier, and it looks like the Mirror's lost nearly twenty percent of its circulation in a year. Um, uh, so there's a kind of vertiginous decline, and I think really much sooner than we think, we'll we'll walk into shops and there won't be any newspapers for sale. You know, there may be some free sheets. Yeah, so we were just looking at um, the circulation 
figures and the sun, its percentage year-on-year change is uh, down 8.2%. And at the same time, the metro, which is the free paper, has gone up 10%. So this has been kind of a theme, a slow change that's been going on where, um, you know, first of all, you have this kind of conflict over pricing, but then the increase in, in free newspapers. So... Um, we get on to uh, the whole experience of buying and reading the sun a little bit later on, but I, I agree. It's a very, it was kind of a weird thing. I mean, it's never something that I've been in the habit of doing, but I think there was a time around a, probably a decade and a half ago where I, I was in the sort of habit of buying the independent in the morning um, when I was on my way to work. This was when the independent was kind of left um, at the Labour Party anyway. Yeah. I think that's the last time I did it. It was sort of um, kind right. of a curious experience. So anyway, yeah, as, as Dan says, what the way we thought we'd do this, and we're going to do it with other publications, is to do a sort of review of the papers, um, which we come to, but to, to sort of uh, begin with a, sort of an account of the history of these uh, particular publications, you know, where they come from, where they're going, which is obviously to oblivion. But... Um, Dan, do you want to start with the sort of uh, the prehistory of the sun, if you like? Yeah, I do. I do. I, um, I mean, oddly, we don't think of it as being an old newspaper, but the sun, the sun begins, it's prehistory, if you like, begins in around 1910 when a group of striking print con- compositors create their own newspaper, um, which, um, after one or two title changes, um, is christened the Daily Herald, and it's a very inter- it's a very interesting publication in its first couple of years. In part because um, it creates a network called the Daily Herald League, which is a, a collection of supporting groups um, of I think societies and trade unions around the country who have some kind of governance role uh, in in the newspaper. They have some kind of editorial role. Um, and hopefully, I think, Tom and I will be looking at that in a bit more detail because it's a sort of... It's a prototypical example of uh, of what Tom and I have been talking about, that the idea that, that we need to, to bring readerships and uh, editorial staff into a closer kind of harmony we need much more of a dialogue and a dialogue which is in is in some way it seems much more easily achieved with digital technology than it would have been uh in the days of um the you know print post um this period of syndicalist uh control is interesting as well because it seems to go beyond um traditional ideas about worker control it's not just that the, edit- the the people working on the newspaper um, have a say in how uh, how the newspaper is run and in the and the kinds of things that it covers. It's actually that the people who end up reading the newspaper are also involved in its governance. And I think that's something that's often missed in um, post World War One uh, labour thinking about um, media reform. It's not just that the workers involved in the production of the media need to be empowered, although that's very important. It's also that the the people who end up relying on on media production 
uh, need to be empowered. Um, and that's something, as I say, in prototypical form, perhaps we can see in the, in the Daily Herald League. Now, this is a very brief period of, um, of ra radical sort of democratic participation. Um, quite soon, a group of wealthy former liberals move in uh, and take over the Herald. Um, and this is part of, I think, a wider story in the Labour movement of how pre-First World War syndicalism is gradually edged out by what I think is really, in some ways, a takeover of the Labour Party by liberals who can see which way the wind is blowing. Um, I'm not saying that they're that they're melts, but um, but there's some <laughs> there's, there's something going on. But there. were they alive today? Um, were they, they alive today? Really to they would be very much seen. I think they would see themselves. I think as part of the of the sort of vital moderate centre. Um, yeah. And the Daily Herald then goes through a number of iterations. For our purposes, I think the most important one is between 1930 uh, and 1964. Um, during the 20s, um, the TUC tries to run the newspaper um, as as a uh, as a wholly owned union newspaper. In 1930, under commercial pressure, it's losing, I think quite a lot of money, it sells 51% of the, the Herald to a, a private newspaper family um, called the, I think they're called the Odoms family, um, who are, you know, they're, they're one of those sort of entrepreneurial um, uh, capitalist publishers of, of the time. They make a tremendous commercial success of the Daily Herald. Uh, they innovate with a lot of the the, the kinds of features that become um, much more familiar after the war in tabloid publishing. Uh, there are lots of reader competitions. Uh, I think they invent spot the ball competitions. I may, I may be wrong about that. But anyway, they, they are um, extremely effective, um, popular publishers. And this is yoked more or less uneasily or awkwardly with a, uh, a, a, a sort of unbending support for the Labour Party. So you have here the, uh, the phenomenon of a very, very popular um, daily newspaper, which is um, firmly aligned with, uh, with the objectives and the interests of uh, the Labour movement. And I think, it's, I, it, I think it really bears um, careful thought that the period of um, Labour ascendancy, which which we get to in 1945, is built really through, I think, a very successful media strategy. You have the Daily Herald, you also have um, the Workers' Education Association, you have uh, a very lively culture of um, pamphlet publishing and so on. And together, I think this is, this is a big part of how you build the social democratic consensus of 1945. Um, and that, that, that's what I think, and that makes what happens to the Daily Herald all the more poignant because after the war, um, its formula starts to lose some of its luster, its, uh, its readers get older, um, and it starts to come under uh, much fiercer commercial pressure with the launch of the Daily Mirror um, by IPC in, I think, the 19, late 40s, early 50s. Um, and Daily Herald loses a lot of advertising re revenue, and much of that goes to the Daily Mirror. 
so much so that in 1960, um, uh, the Odoms share is bought out by IPC. And in 1964, the trade unions, 49% share is bought uh, by IPC as well. And they promptly relaunch it as The Sun. Um, and they try to run it as a, um, as a sort of almost like a stablemate for the Daily Mirror. Um, and there's some quite interesting sort of discussions, I think, at the time about how the, the new spirit of individualism in, in Britain can be, um, can be given expression in a newspaper. Um, and there's a lot of, um, I think, probably commercially driven and sort of advertiser focused concern about how do how do newspapers capture the um the youth quake you know the the sense of a of a um a young country uh swinging london and and so on there's this clearly a sort of cultural moment they also have a basher they have a basher kind of bringing out market don't they so there's talk about like capturing um you know the sort of uh marginalized middle class or something which is similar to the language of aspiration that um really starts to take hold in the 1980s yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. Um, I think that the um, the Herald is seen as being associated with a kind of uh, a slightly sort of you know you know it's associated with the slump, with the depression, uh, with the with the austerity um, surrounding the Second World War, um, and I think they yeah they are looking to cater to a new generation, but after a few years of experimentation, they essentially give up. Um, I think they. They continue to lose circulation with the sun, and they eventually sell it to an up-and-coming, scrappy uh, newcomer in the um, British newspaper market, Rupert Murdoch. And that's where I think um, the uh, the sun find, starts to find its footing. And, and what happens, I think, which is interesting, and I think which bears fruit in the 1980s in particular, is that you get this wedding of of 60s hedonism, the idea of kind of youth and popular culture um, and the idea of having a good time is wedded quite successfully with a kind of individualist and almost proto-Thatcherite ideology of, you know, getting on um, and not being um, bound into uh, the the sort of collectivism uh, that had characterised working class culture um, in the mid-century. Um, and that, so that's where I think, as I say, that's where I think we start to see the sun hit its stride. And then Tom, let's talk, do you want to talk a bit about the sun as a sort of Thatcherite, um, sort of vanguard? Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, the, it's such a sort of seminal moment, I think, when Murdoch takes over the sun, but it's not. And of course, the news of the world, but it's not actually—it's not actually as a sort of a watershed moment as as you'd think. I mean, as is of course often the case in in history, you know, the change occurs kind of gradually because Murdoch, um, you know, he he takes it over in in '69, is it? And then there's a sort of there's a there's a gradual shift away from the association with Labour. So even for the first you know, for that first decade where he controls it, there's still this association with, you know, it's still seen as a uh, a working class tabloid, uh, a labour supporting tabloid, but it's really during the course of, um, in, the, in the mid-1970s, at the same time as the 
Conservative Party shifts away from what you know gets called One Nation Conservatism and starts to embrace um, neoliberalism or um, Thatcherism, of course, as it's called within the Conservative Party. Um, that the the Sun gradually starts to move away from support of the Labour Party. I mean, it was actually relatively critical for uh, of Thatcher in in the early period in the in the nineteen seventies, oh, and then by the time we get to the seventy nine election. Um, it's as a sort of, you know, sort of cheerleading of um, the Thatcherite revolution, this uh, very anti-Labour stance, which it, it, it particularly seizes on, along with the rest of the right-wing press, uh, around, you know, famously around the winter of discontent. So you have that, you know, that famous headline, uh, crisis, what crisis, this idea of the social democratic state as a sort of... Um, you know, com- completely complacent, kind of disintegrating political order and, and Thatcherism as being an attempt to sort of, you know, um, burst forward into um, prosperity and shake off the shackles of uh, the post-war consensus and all the rest of it. Um, the, I mean, behind all of that, you know, there's been this sort of story um, across the industry where a series of corporate consolidations and had taken place uh, where advertising pressure had sort of squeezed the uh, the share of the of the, of the um, newspaper market for of the left supported papers and you know in the sense you know the, the the conversion from the Daily Herald to the Sun is kind of symbolic of the shift that that takes place but whereas by circulation in a lot of the post-war period, I mean, the conservative supporting papers always have an edge. Um, it's something close to um, parity up to the mid-1970s um, between conservative supporting papers and then those supporting, you know, Lib Dems or, you know, the, their, their predecessors and the Labour Party. And then conservative support for the newspapers, I mean, it, it jumps up. I mean, first of all, in in, in 74, which was when you have a, a the sort of rise of uh, Benism and a much more militant, organised working class, mm-hmm. um, which obviously spooks the, um, the the right and the capitalists. And, and then particularly from 79 and the whole of the Thatcher period, you know, you have very strong um, majority support for the Conservatives and the, you know, the Sun, which has always been the biggest circulating newspaper throughout that period, um, daily national newspaper, um, contributed hugely to that uh, sort of hegemony within within the press. Right, and there's a sense, isn't there, that their their rightward tilt made made a great deal of sense commercially. Um, they seem to be riding a wave of, you know, there was a degree of popular enthusiasm for for Thatcher as a as an agent of um, what appeared appeared to be emancipation and um, opportunities for self determination. It's interesting, and yeah, I think that's. I mean, it's interesting. Just very quickly, it's interesting. To, you mentioned how um, the right is. Um, uh, to some extent, energised by the rise of um, Benism in the Labour Party. I think it's easy to to miss this, this, the extent to which the neoliberal turn is driven by fear of um, fear of the left. Um, that's true, both I think in the UK and in the US. Um, 
it's easy to miss the extent to which in the early 70s socialist transformation did seem to be a live possibility. But um, so that's Oh, absolutely, yeah. And I think the other thing that's easy to miss is that a lot of the reaction was, I mean, not just against, um, yeah, the, the, the now relatively, in retrospect, rather brief um, <coughs> gains of the left in the early 1970s, but also the kind of legacy of... Um, 60s social movements and liberalism, you know, so if you think of Thatcherism as a movement, um, as, a, as, a, as a popular movement, which really, can, the strongest claim for that is in is in the mid to late 1970s. I mean, Thatcher, once Thatcherism comes into power, um, it, it can't really claim a huge amount of popular support, although obviously it, it manages to build successful electoral coalitions for the whole period. Mm -hmm. The height of support for that kind of politics is really in in the 1970s and you know it's a complicated sort of mix but a part of it is the kind of anti-liberal conservatism and um obviously you know popular racism um combined with the sort of political dynamics you've been describing that more sort of um future sort of forward-looking um consumerist kind of um hedonistic kind of ethos you know and you can see a lot of those things balance slightly uneasily within British conservatism, and the places that the place of the sun in that, um, you know, it's always been a, a funny sort of cultural artifact in terms of yeah, where no, it you're, stands. You're right. There's a tremendous volatility there, isn't there? And I think just going, you know, there is this striking difference between the the mainstream left's relationship with the social movements um, and what we would think of as the new right. I mean, there is an attempt throughout the 60s and 70s to, to reconcile um, the trade union movement and the labour institutions with these new movements from emancipation that come from feminism, um, uh, anti-racism, gay rights and so on. And in fact, the, the right is better at absorbing those those strands in some senses even even into this very volatile mix as you say um which includes sort of imperial nostalgia um and indeed and racism as well so you would think that the natural alliance would be between um the established institutions of the left the labor party the trade unions and so on with these new social movements um but while there are elements in the Labour Party seeking to, to make that connection, one thinks particularly of um, Livingston and the people around him at the GLC and the kind of municipal socialist tradition, um, the mainstream of the Labour Party, I think, is very slow and reluctant to take on board these new emancipatory movements. Um, yeah, that's absolutely right. And I think, you know, it's worth mentioning as well, and people sometimes forget this, that um, Benism in its sort of early phase was very explicitly, um, you know, and Ben was very explicit about this, the, the idea that, um, first of all, the left needed to be sort of anti-elitist, and secondly, it needed to learn from the, the 60s social movements. And, uh, you know, some of that has been a bit lost in understandings of the period, partly because um, a lot of the people who who then later start to embrace that kind of politics, kind of set them set themselves against Benison to some degree, which is, you know, in the 1980s comes to be seen, particularly after 1983, as a sort of retrograde kind of politics. But actually the Benites were trying to find a way out of what they also recognised as a crisis of, you know, the social democratic state. I mean, I think 
when we talk about the Conservatives, though, it's, it's probably worth um, uh, sort of bearing in mind, and particularly with the Sun, you know, how hostile they were actually to those new left movements that you've been describing. I mean, certainly there's an attempt to embrace a kind of collective um, discontent with um, austerity, Britain, and you know the, the institutions of the social democratic state and the rest of it. But I mean, if you think, for example, of the way that the Sun um, treated campaigns for um, for gay rights in the 1980s, I mean, it's just extraordinary, you know, looking back on that period. And you're, of course, like as you say, it was um, it was the the left of the Labour Party, particularly um, the people around the GRC, which were which were to their to their cost in terms of attacks from the right wing press, which really tried to turn that into an effective form form of political action. Yeah, I mean, yeah, they, I, mean, I, th- the, I guess the homophobia of the sun towards like Peter Tatchell, for example, is just extraordinary. Yeah, no, you're right, I and mean, I think yeah, it's important to make that to make that clear that their their embrace of individualism um, was. At the same time, it was a very, it was an extreme conformist conception of individualism. Um, it was yeah. um, the lager drinking white bloke in the pub um, who got to do what he wanted with his money and not have it taken away by the state. Um, there was, you say, very little. Um, well, there was no sympathy. In fact, great deal of active hostility to um, anything that smacked of. Um, attempts to find new forms of living. Um, in that in that sense, we can we can call uh, the Sun an importantly conservative newspaper. Um, but as I say, it's I think it is interesting that it, it it was able to harness some of this thirst for uh, individual expression um, that the the institutions of the social democratic state hadn't been able. Um, to find room for, um, and which I think you know the tragedy of I think the tragedy of the of the period is that the attempts by Ben and others to find a way forward would have exa- would have precisely looked at find finding ways that individual flourishing could be reconciled with the need for collective provision, um, and I think many people in the movement. Um, were happier with um, the Thatcherite revanche than they would have been with a Benite government, frankly. Um, and not, you know, not to force parallels with the current era, but um, I have a sense that there are a lot of people who would think of themselves on the left who would rather have a moderate, as they see it, a moderate conservative government um, than anything uh, that involves Corbyn and MacDonald. Um, yeah. Um, so yeah, to sort of push on with our yeah yeah brief gotta, history of the sun. Crack on. Um, so yeah, a, a sort of very significant moment came in '79 with the the sun sort of crisis. What crisis headline? Um, the Thatcher had formed very close relationship with Murdoch and the people around her, um, the editorial teams of the sun. I mean, I think just to sort of. <clears throat> compliment what you were just saying actually um it's also important to remember the sort of again the political economy which lies behind some of these cultural changes because the the people around uh thatcher in that in that early period um a lot of them worked in advertising so the sarchis were were famously very influential 
And so that kind of um, fostering of a certain um, a certain sort of consumerist and hedonistic culture is, of course, linked to particular capitalist interests, which are interested in um, advertising and consumer booms and the rest of it. Um, and in terms of, you know, I mean, not all of the press allied with, with Thatcher. So, you know, you had um, the Mirror, which stayed um, law to labour. But... Um, it, it was very clear that there were particular interests, particularly advertisers and section of the press, that had um, an interest in fostering a certain sort of um, consumer culture. And the Sun, I think, was was part of that. It was, you know, vehemently anti-left, so they were, were attacking the um, social democratic uh, party. You know, at this point in '79, um, the right of the Labour Party are in control. Um, and get, get, attacked by Labour, um, and then the, the, the Sun is extremely hostile towards uh, the Labour left throughout the 1980s, uh, you know, becomes a cheerleader for, for Thatcherism, and then you have the whopping strike, which is, you know, where, where Murdoch tries, tries to um, transfer his operations and sort of heads down the, the print unions, which is, is sometimes gets eclipsed by the minor strike for obvious reasons, but was the other you know, very key kind of <clears throat> seminal uh, strike of that period uh, where the bosses headed down a powerful union and effectively Murdoch broke the print unions and that becomes a very important uh, moment for, for British political history as well and the Sun, again, played a part in that. It was very supportive of uh, and very jingoistic during the Falklands uh, you have particularly, you know, disgraceful episodes around um, around its reporting of of Hillsborough. So at this point, you know, the, the Sun has kind of moved from yeah this uh, sort of labour supporting um, consumerist working class daily towards uh, a very uh, sort of belligerently popular right wing populist um, working class daily, and it reaches its and, it, and it's very important for Thatcherism. There, there was a an interesting piece of research that I wanted to mention, which is looking into whether, which was recently published last year, which was looking into the electoral influence of uh, of the Sun, and because it's one of these very difficult areas to try and isolate, what is the independent effect of uh, of newspapers on people's political decision making, particularly on elections? There's a huge amount of literature on this. Um, now, what this particular paper does is it looks at um, household panel survey and the British Social Attitude Survey, uh, readers of the Sun and their voting behaviour, and then controlling for um, political attitudes and political allegiances, um, examines whether the Sun backing a particular party can have a significant independent political effect. Mm -hmm. And what they, what they discover is that around 2% of the popular vote can be accounted for by uh, the Sun backing one party or another. In, in this case, they were looking at the 1997 election that swept uh, New Labour to power, and then <coughs> 2010, which of course um, creates the Conservative uh, Liberal Democrat coalition and, mm -hmm. and lays the groundwork for, for everything that, that, that follows. Um, and this 2% is enough in the case of 2010 to, to swing the election, and that's the point where... Um, you know, the Sun has basically, uh, you know, broken with the Labour Party after a period of extended uh, support under New Labour. So what happens during New Labour is that the Sun decides to, black, to back Blair mm -hmm. uh, in 97, 
up to the 2005 election, there is still majority support for Labour by circulation in the press. And this falls dramatically in 2010, where you have only 15% of the, of the press by circulation um, supporting the Labour Party. So it's, it's a complex issue, of course, the relationship between um, newspaper readership and uh, political allegiances and attitudes and all the rest of it. But the best evidence suggests that in particular circumstances, a large paper like The Sun is able to actually have very tangible material political effects on, on political outcomes. And it's been a problem which, you know, the Labour movement has faced throughout its history is um, the, 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 the British press is dominated by um, conservative publications, um, which where the press itself is, is to, right, to the right of the population. And in particular times, um, they won't necessarily, won't always sort of uh, adopt uncritical attitudes towards the Conservative Party, but they will viciously uh, attack the left. But that seems to have, have changed recently. I mean, that's one of the extraordinary things about the um, the election this year, really. Right, and uh, there's a number of things going on here, isn't there? I mean, the the sense of a kind of national enchantment that the Sun was able to project in the 1980s um, must have been under must be undermined by its decline in circulation. It's it's you know it's selling half the number of newspapers now than it was. Um, in I think the mid nineties, um, and that in, and I think their peak is uh, I may be wrong on this, but I think their peak is in the late eighties, where they may be selling something like four million. And so there's I think there's immediately the fact that they don't have the they just don't have the material reach uh, that they once had. Um, and as we talked about in the context of um, the uh, the election this year. Their ability to speak without being spoken back to um, has been significantly um, uh, compromised by the rise of social media, in particular. Um, so you look at the, you know, you look at the the the, um, the vicious kind of uh, attacks on Labour leaders, for example, um, in the nineteen eighties, early nineties, the way that. Um, Neil Kinnock was pilloried, for example. Um, you know, will the, will the last person to leave the UK switch out the lights or, or whatever the formulation was? There was a sense that they, these... The sun really loomed large in, in the popular imagination in the way that I think this year it still thought it did. So its front page on election day was, let's put him in the core bin. Did you remember? Did you see that front page? It was, it was a picture... I've got it in front of me. It's don't chuck Britain in the core bin. That's right, right. And don't do that because... And it, it does... I mean, it does provide a list of reasons why you shouldn't put vote Corbyn. It says he's terrorist's friend. He's useless on Brexit. He's a destroyer of jobs. Enemy of business. Massive tax hikes. Hikes. Puppet of the unions. Nuclear surrender. Ruinous spending. Open immigration. And last, but certainly not least... Marxist extremist, and there's a picture um, of what well, it's. It's kind of a bit strange. They say don't chuck Britain in the core bin, yeah. but then there's also Corbyn in the bin. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> it's just like yeah, it's, it's not entirely clear whether this is the core bin, yeah, or because Corbyn's in it, 
or we should I guess put him we, in we, the bin. Yeah. Metaphorically, it's not clear what's going on, but there's um, there's also an apple core and a, a, um, a sort of a fish bones. Right. So that's because it's that's sort of again that's the, and that's interesting because that's kind of that's harks back to that that sort of traditional visual palette that you think of with like the Beano and the Dandy. Like a bin will always yeah. have it will always have a fish bone. And a cat going, whoa, that doesn't have stink, doesn't it? And he, like, you can see how that image fits into a long tradition of successful monstering of Labour leaders and of left-wing ideas. But you can also see how it's like, it's, it's something that a 16-year-old making memes would be embarrassed by, right? If yeah, they, it does, that's the thing, it does look crap. It looks I like mean, a terrible meme, yeah. Um, and it's that sense that they're no longer the top predator in the in the realm of mediated abuse, which I think is really interesting. That they are no longer as good at what they think they're good at uh, as they once were. And and then some of this. It was really weird, actually. In in this week, so we're going to come on to reviewing the papers for this week. But there was a section on um, a sort of online. Um, memes which have been sort of you know subject to some trolling and and sort of disapproving them uh, of these particular memes i mean we, we can come on to that but it sort of illustrated that for me that point that you know the sun are sort of doing something now which everyone's doing online much better through sort of just crowdsourcing stuff yeah. instead of just someone being i mean this honestly this front page i'm looking at it looks like a really shit um photoshopping um, there's a little fly on it as well, but you're right, it looks like the Beano or something, or maybe like, I don't know, like Ses- it's supposed to be like Sesame Street or something, I'm, I can't, I don't know what the cultural resonance is supposed to be really, it doesn't really make a lot of sense. I definitely think that, I think that they, the, the kind of life world of the tabloids is interesting, in that certainly when I was reading it in the 80s, a lot of the language was extremely archaic, so they would, like, children would always be called tots, um, and people yeah. would always be called folk, and and I could imagine this sort of language going back to the sort of eighteen eighties, eighteen nineties, where you know you would have the sort of proto popular press writing for um, working class readers and providing them with you know um, journalism as entertainment um, in that period, and and coming up with this very sort of intimate, uh, frowsty world of you know, oh, it's all very creepy, um, but. Yeah, as you say, what's interesting, I think, is that you you know you were seeing this shift from a kind of industrial mode of production where the main thing that matters is control of the printing presses, right? There aren't that many print, printing presses in the country, and there aren't that many people who have national distribution. So if you can if you can get control of this kind of quasi-industrial process of production, then you can, to some extent, plausibly impersonate what what ordinary people are thinking or what your readership should be thinking um and then and now we're in a very different world where people as you say can kind of crowdsource responses to things which in their nature are much more various and then go through a process of um kind of you know mass approval which means that the 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 memes that you or i end up seeing at the end of this process are really good right they're really like of the moment and they're really on the on the button and a a daily newspaper just simply cannot compete um yeah and it 
the conservatives were recently talking about trying to make their own memes, weren't they? But yeah. I guess the thing is, like, the tabloids have normally traditionally done it for them. Yeah. But, I mean, you just sort of dread to think what they're going to come out with. I, I'm sure they're sitting around somewhere being, like, trying to work with Corbyn's name. So, they're like, well, Bin is obviously going to be top of the list. Um, core would be, is, I mean, the core is one of the favourite words for the sun, isn't it? It when is, yeah, core. Theory. Yeah. Um, core, core, core blimey. Um, shall we get on to reviewing the, yeah, the let's week talk in the, about, the week? Let's talk about the week in the sun. The thing, our week in the sun, exactly. Murdoch inherited the basis of his newspaper empire from his father, built on it and enlarged it to cover every state in Australia. He's chubby-cheeked and open-faced, but underneath, say those who know him, he's a man of steel. Ruthless in getting his own way, iron-willed in seeing that his plans are carried through. I would just like to say one sentence. This is the most humble day of my life. You've been particularly critical of what you call the content kleptomaniacs and the plagiarists. Are you particularly talking about Google here? Well, there's Google, there's Microsoft, there's... Um ask.com uh, there's a whole lot of people the fact is there's not enough advertising in the world to go around to make all the websites uh, uh, profitable that nice little woman down your street underneath it all she's one of the huntresses this week the sun looks at a new breed of woman who no longer waits to be asked young and old single and married they all hunt their men and bring them back alive meet the huntresses in the sun Learn how to talk to your body to make it beautiful in the sun. And let them truckers roll. Find out what it's like in the world of the truck driver. Discover the secrets of their private code, learn their slang, and meet their girls. In Go Trucker Go! All in your Super 5B Sun this week. We should definitely talk about Sarah Champion's article last week. And the way that... Yeah. And then Trevor, Trevor Kavanagh's article on Monday. Um, which I think probably, in a way, did for her. Um... Because um, he took some, you know, he took her article and used it as justification for talking well, about... Well, I think, let's first of all, Dan, let's be a little bit clearer about this, what Sarah Champion actually wrote. Because, uh, I mean, before she resigned, she sort of said, oh, you know, The Sun took out all nuance from my article or something, which, you know, you could never anticipate that, of course. Um, the sun being well known for its nuance, but th these are the words which her um, which her article started with. Britain has a problem with Pakistan British Pakistani men raping and exploiting white girls. There, full stop. I said it, full stop. Does that make me a racist? I mean, it was it's extraordinary, really, because and then they, the sun. I mean, not her. You know, has this sort of picture of um, a young white girl, and then the sort of sinister. Um, man in a hoodie kind of um standing over her um i mean there's no quite apart from how the sun is then going to instrumentalize it during the week i mean there's really um no excusing in my opinion that sarah champion wrote this article i mean i don't see it as a politically defensible way of uh, of handling the issue of child sexual abuse no i, I don't, well yeah there's the fact that she, the fact that she wrote it for, for in, in for the sun, I think is, it is itself itself kind of shocking, actually. Yeah, um, exactly. Like, well, why why go to the sun if yeah. you and then complain about a lack of nuance? Yeah, I, and I think that there needs to be, you know, we remember there was that there was that picture of Ed Miliband posing with the sun, wasn't there? Um, 
a while ago, and it looked like a very craven attempt to sort of curry favour um, with, uh, with the right-wing press. And I think that, you know, we need to be much clearer about the fact that if you want to be a left-wing politician, then you have to take a stand against um, the right-wing press. They're not, they're, not, they're not to be won over. I mean, they are to be faced down, it seems to me. Um, and I think yeah, I there is an important kind of dividing line here between what I would see as a kind of, you know, a principled socialist and labour-oriented politics and the kind of politics which wants to somehow make itself acceptable or tolerable um, to right-wing reaction. And I just don't think there's any room for that anymore. It's just no, there's no, there's no justification for it. Um no, I agree. There's no need. I think as well. I think what was interesting about her article, like the language was incredibly wild, and um, uh, yeah, and you know, I th- you know, inflammatory is fair to say. I mean, the, you know, the form of words she chose was, was highly inflammatory. I think as well that when you got to, you know, like her justification for saying it was like we've got to understand this so that it doesn't happen again, right? And so her argument was that we need to re- do research on these um, these abusers and find out what it was about their background or culture or whatever that that made them in, into abusers. And again, I think this is this is this is a hopeless approach to the issue, um, and and leads to all kinds of um, incredibly dangerous sort of trends of thought, if you like, about. Presumably the idea that Pakistani culture or Islam is in some way a safe haven for, for abusive behaviours and beliefs and so on. Um, mm-hmm. Now, I don't, you know, she didn't say that explicitly. But that's the thing, she's talking about doing the research, but then and, but then writes an article about, you know, for the sum with a, a whole set of assumptions about what the underlying causes of child abuse might be or who, you know, whether there are particular... Um, problems within particular demographics that therefore need to be targeted. You know, like no one could, no one could disagree with the idea that we need to pay more attention to the problem of child sexual abuse. That they need the policy needs to be based on um, you know adequate research and the rest of it. But yeah. what's objectionable about it is that you know there was already a set of assumptions, um, racist assumptions built into um, built into the article. Right. Should we? Should we start then with um, with uh, with Trevor's uh, editorial, which was on Monday? Yeah. So Trevor like takes full advantage of Sarah Champions piece in an article which is ostensibly about. You can probably Europe. hear me and Dan rustling our newspapers. This yeah. To show that we really it's like, really are reviewing the physical papers. It is like the Sunday politics, isn't it? It's great. Um, yeah, so there's an article which is purportedly about Brexit and immigration policy, um, but which sort of pivots round at some point to talk about Sarah Champion's piece. Um, and I think, I mean, I think the, the, the stand-up f- phrase here... Um, is where the, he concludes the article saying, one day soon, if Philip Hammond and Liam Fox are right, we will be back in charge of immigration. And he says, what will we do about the Muslim problem then? Um, and so, yeah, so 
Champion's article is is taken as a sort of opening for Kavanagh to talk about the Muslim problem. Um, as though, yeah, as he has here, um, so there is one unspoken fear, gagged by political correctness, which links Britain and the rest of the world. The common denominator, almost unsayable until last week's furore over Pakistani sex gangs, is Islam. There's lots of references to Trevor Phillips as well, who, he's been popping up in the sun quite a lot this week. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then Kevin goes and says, thanks to former Equalities Chief Trevor Phillips and Labour MPs such as Rotherham Sarah Champion, it is acceptable to say that Muslims are a specific rather than a cultural problem. Um, and I, I, to all, I, I don't really understand what he means there. Um, I don't actually know what that means. I don't really... What do you mean But what... It's, it's specific isn't normally something you contrast with culture, is it? They're not sort of... Is it specific or is it cultural? Yeah. And what on earth does that mean? It's not a normal... As you say, it's not a normal contrast. Um, You'd underline that as an editor, wouldn't you? And say, um, that's that doesn't really make sense. Yeah, it's, it's, it would be your I mean, job. I would have said, if he said... Does it, if he said... Muslims are a specific cultural problem, then that would also be objectionable. But yeah, it's not really clear what he's saying. It's clear he's not saying anything that's nice about Muslims, that's for sure. And then the yeah, I guess section after that, the BBC tried to divert attention. The, the Sun will always throw in a reference to the BBC where it can, because they're, of course, the bastion of political correctness. Yeah. Yeah, where are we? Is that Trevor Phillips again? Yeah. He blames the BBC for trying to divert attention. Yeah, same attention. article. the... Um, yeah, the British authorities have long deliberately disregarded Muslim sex crimes. Um, now, I think, you know, I think it, it, it's worth taking a moment to think about what, what a meaningful response to the problem of child sex abuse and grooming would look like. And... One of the things that comes that comes out very strongly in the in the coverage I've read of of these cases is that often parents would be saying to the police that they were extremely worried about their their children, the company they were keeping, and and actually often would have evidence of ongoing abuse that the police were not investigating. And and I think if we're going to be serious about this problem. Um, I think we should stop talking about political correctness. We should stop talking about all these, you know, this more or less kind of veiled talk about cultural issues. And we should talk about the conduct of the police. The police, it seems to me, have decided that there are some populations, particularly of young working class girls, who are kind of fair game. Like, particularly girls in care, or girls from working class backgrounds, they're just... They're not really seen as being um, worthy of the protection of the rule of law. And that is a systemic problem in the police. And it will only be addressed by systemic change uh, in the police. And, and, I, and I have to say, I'm not, I'm, not in, I'm not impressed by simply saying, oh, well, we need to take child abuse seriously. Clearly, it's not being taken seriously enough um, in certain quarters, by certain police forces, and and I don't think that will change, frankly, until the governance of the police changes, so that um, the governance of the police is more in tune with the needs of a democratic culture. 
Um, because I have no doubt that if these if these girls had been middle class, um, they the police response would have been very different. That would be my view. Yeah. Um, and I yeah, the uh, the son comes back to this, this this story. I mean, here and there throughout the week, but today um, it had a kind of defence of the uh, of the angle that was taken in the sun. It's had some sort of condemnation of the decision to uh, to force Sarah Champion's resignation. So on pages fourteen and fifteen today. You've got a headline backing Brandy who quit in Asian rape gangs storm, and then um, support from Savage Javid. Uh, that was interesting. That was very interesting because, um, like that, that was covered by the Guardian as well, who who quoted his tweet saying something worse the fact that Corbyn shouldn't have sacked her, but she just resigned. He didn't sack her. Um, we're um, saying here in this story that um, she was asked to resign, or at least she, you know, if she hadn't resigned, she would have, um, she would have been fired. And that's what that's what the Sun's reporting, anyway. Right, Although, right. Whether that's true, of course, you know. But um, yeah, anyway. So we've got Trevor Phillips popping up again here in in support of a, a decision. He says it feels like to me like Starmist have decided to remind everyone that they are in charge. He was gobsmacked and dispirited by the news. Extraordinary, really. Yeah, I don't um, I don't know where he I don't know where he, I don't know how he gets to where he's got to really. I mean, I think more generally there was a that I you know I I had a sense that well, I mean, I just I don't understand why she wrote the article, frankly. And I don't I just No, it's it's very baffling. Um because it's it not baffling. like she doesn't um, it's not like she doesn't know um, you know, she doesn't. It's like she she must know how how these 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 dynamics work. Anyway, um, yeah, well, it's extraordinary. It's extraordinary thing. I mean, we don't we don't really have enough time to to discuss it and do it justice, really. No, um, except to no. sort of know that. I mean, what kind of happened here was you know she wrote the piece um, and then attempted to sort of backpedal a bit, and then the son said, "Well, you know, it was." Re- it was approved by her office and, and so on. And um, and now, of course, as you would expect to be the case, the decision for her to resign has now been seen, it's now going to be a sort of running cry for those on the right who are saying that, you know, you can't have a central conversation about this, which is what they've been saying about um, immigration and related issues for, for decades, whilst constantly having conversations about it. Right, so there um, is a sense that they there is a, there seems to be a desire to find wedge issues in the Labour Party, um, which can separate out um, the sort of what people, you know, the moderate or traditional Labour um, supporters from Corbyn's core supporters. Um, and we saw this, I think, with with the, the business of, of online abuse and the need for a culture of civility. Um, and I think to some extent, as you say, we see it here, even though the facts of the case simply do not support that interpretation. Um, I noticed um, alongside this uh, the story in uh, Today's Sun, there's an article by, this, by a Times journalist, uh, Andrew Norfolk, who'd written about um, grooming gangs in Rotherham. And it says at the bottom, this article previously appeared in the Times, which is 
course, um, by, by Murdoch as well. So you see this kind of uh, cross-platform stuff. And I think yesterday, son, on Thursday, they had um, a discussion of the Great British Bake Off. And it was like, um, you know, you want to hear more about this, then tune in to Talk Radio, which is also owned by News International. Right. And I think this, so this is what, one of the things that... <coughs> there was also a piece, I think yesterday, about um, cultural sensitivities surrounding uh, traveller and Roma communities, um, which in a way was travelling a similar path uh, to Sarah Champion's piece about how we've got to, you know, not let political correctness having a sensible conversation and so on. And that, again, was syndicated yeah. from The Times, I think. And this, I think this touches on... This touches on a um, on something that I, that was quite striking. Reading the paper this week was a sense of a slow thinning out of the product. Um, it seems more diluted uh, than it was in its heyday, and this was particularly striking in the Sun on Sunday, which um, was, as you know, the, the Sun on Sunday is a kind of replacement for the News of the World, uh, which had been Murdoch's kind of main. Sunday paper in the you know in the tabloid format, uh, which was closed down after the hacking scandal. Comparing the Sun on Sunday to the News of the World in its in its prime, um, it's it's a very pale imitation of what it was. Um, there were seven pages um, of the paper were devoted to Ant from Ant and Dex. Um, addiction to prescription painkillers, um, uh, and very little else that I could see. Um, but as you say, there's quite a lot of cross-promotion, which which looks also like kind of cross-subsidies from different parts of the Murdoch empire. Um, and this, this um, and stuff's weird. This has been going on the whole week. Yeah, they've, they've clearly, you know, they've clearly sought to get the as much as they can out of um, the story... Um, and as I say, on, on in the Sunday edition, it it, it, it dominates to an in, to a slightly crazy extent. Um, and then, but so I I didn't get the Sun on Sunday, but so but the Sun on Monday has a whole bunch of stuff on it as well. So I didn't really feel like I missed out on the story because the Sun on Monday was full of it. And then the next day, it was like. Uh, and praises an NH his NHS doctor, and that that was a story. And then there was another one. I think it was on Wednesday, or maybe Thursday, about you know Ant's mum says something about his drug problems. Yeah, it's a very. It was... well, no, sorry, it's the, I sh uh, is it Ant or Deck who's got the drug problems? I think he's. I think it's Ant. Um, yeah, the NHS. <laughs> there was a stage where uh, I don't know if you remember this, but when they, they were really going after Corbyn, where they asked him which one was which, and he was just like, "Sorry, I don't know." And everyone was just like, "How can he expect to win the championship? <laughs> 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 How can <laughs> he expect to lead a nation where he can't be bothered to know the difference?" Um, yeah, it's Anne, it's Anne, it's Anne Dan, and I tell you why. There's an extraordinary story um, in in the sun on this very day, which is the, the sort of the last remnants of, uh, of this, of the story on Sunday. So it's been getting smaller and smaller, but you get little articles about it. And I don't know if you saw this one. If you turn to page 21 of the sun today, I, I, there's an article called Ant, Ant and Peck. I'll read it to you. 
Declan Donnelly strolls. This is Deck, so right. Ant's, Ant's pal. Um, Ant's the one who's been suffering with uh, drug addiction. Declan Donnelly strolls with a fluffy object and lead, and he looks like TV legend Bernie Clifton riding Ostrich Oswald. Deck, 41, was clutching a blanket for his sausage dog, Rocky, on walkies in London. Madcap Bernie, 81, had millions of viewers in stitches as he dashed around on Osmond in the 1980s on his, in his TV heyday. Deck looked in need of a laugh. Perhaps he's missing pal and... <laughs> <laughs> Just out of rehab for his painkillers addiction. And then there's a little picture underneath of um, recovering dot 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 pal and... And then there's just the picture of, um, of, of Deck walking down the road with a sort of a furry blanket. And the, the whole basis of the story is that this, therefore, <laughs> looks like um, Bernie Clifton riding the ostrich in the heyday of the sun in the 1980s. I mean, it's just, it's bizarre. You know, like, how on earth did it, you know, what, what's the process that led this to being a story? And like, or, I mean... Well, yeah, you I don't wonder, know if other people would have been... You wonder whether there is a, um, whether, you know, you wonder whether there's a sort of esoteric meaning to this. Like, are they, are they making some sort of obscure connection to um, a, uh, the 80s, this 80s act um, for, for reasons... Do you know what I mean? It's like, now... What are they saying? So what's he known for, Bernie Clifton, particularly? Because I, I, well, he was, I mean, I sort of recognise him, but... He was a, you know, he was a kind of, he was a bit like Rod Hull and Emu. He was sort of famous for sort of madcap um, interventions where his, his, his emu would get out, um, not his emu, his ostrich would get out of control and would start pecking children in the audience. And looking back, it's all much So were more... they rivals? Were they rivals, this, this ostrich and, and the emu? I mean, no, or, I don't think they were they rivals. The same... They were just sort of in the same kind of ballpark. Um, yeah. And, but they were, you know, the, I suppose you could say, well, the ostrich and, and him were a double act. And maybe there's yeah. some kind of point about, like, Ant and Deck are a double act, and which one's the ostrich, or... I don't know, do you know what I mean? It's like... Are, it, are we being stupid, or are they being stupid? Well, they may be... I, I genuinely don't get it. I don't get it, I don't get it, and I, but I think that the obscurity, we might... It's like, this might be an in-joke or something. You know what I mean? It's like, and like... Uh, yeah, and uh, I don't know whether that would have been something that the editors in the in its heyday would have tolerated. You know what I mean? Like, would they have done something as as willfully obscure as that in the in the back in the day? Who knows? Um, yeah, but there's been a few things like this, like stories I noticed, which just sort of popped up. Like, so there was one which was which also I. Felt a bit antiquated because it was about um, it was about Elvis, and then which was on Wednesday. So there was like the middle page spread was all about Elvis and his you know last days where he had become like um, chronically obese and you know was uh, basically on death's door. And it was talking about this disgusting sandwich that he ate. It was like a whole hollowed out piece of bread filled with a whole packet of jam, a whole packet of oh that's right, peanut yeah. butter. And then, and someone, then the next day someone ate it, didn't they? The sun. Yeah, so like they send a journalist um, to go and to go and eat the sandwich, and then they had this whole sort of little article on it, which is again a little nod to the story that they did before. But it was just like to me, it seemed like really weird because like you, you know you got like things like Man versus Food, which is like I quite like that show actually. I'm quite a greedy person, but I mean 
they uh, just a sort of really shit kind of article where the guy's dressed up as Elvis and it, he's sort of describing about the process of eating the sandwich, really. But it's, it's not even very funny. He's just sort of saying, um, I race through the first quarter, but slow down as the jam covers my face. A few gulps of water and I power on. But then, halfway through, it is all too much. My Elvis jumps, it's straining, my stomach churning and heart thumping. I feel, in capitals, all shook up. I'm guessing that's an Elvis song, is it? <laughs> it is, yeah. And, uh, and, and about to join Elvis six feet under, because he's dead, of course. The great man breathed his last at Graceland's home after crashing off the toilet on the floor. After my endless Sunday sandwich challenge, I may spend the rest of the day with my head down the loo. It was just, like, weird stuff like that. I mean, I, my overall sort of feeling of reading the sun was, it's not, it's not quite as, I mean, it's had these really sort of politically toxic sort of moments, like particularly with the, the sort of key political columnists and there, there's sections where they're talking about Brexit and, you know, you've got um, Trevor Kavanagh and, uh, and, and the Rod Little columns, sure. but generally it's not, it's not nearly as political as I've remembered it being actually. Was that, did you get that sort of feeling reading it as well? Yeah, I did. I did. It didn't, it didn't feel as, as, um, uh, yeah, as, as ideologically sharp as it as it had in its in, in its heyday, I think. Um, and as yeah, you mentioned, kind of like... as you mentioned before, before we came on, I mean, they did like a on Wednesday, they did a double page on um, rail chaos on the day price hikes announced. Um, they also did yeah. a front page story on Jeremy Hunt's extravagant bathroom. Um, so there's a kind of, you know, there's. There's a willingness to sort of kick against the elites, which is, which is, I suppose, part of its tradition. Um, but as you say, a lot of the a lot of the stuff is is um, uh, is fairly toothless, really. I think in terms of its kind of ideological um, message, there's a lot of obviously a lot of stuff is derived from television. Um, the front page on, on on Wednesday is about an attack on a, an actress. Um, there's there's Ant is on the front page on Tuesday as a sort of sidebar, and the Great British Back Off is the uh, front page on Thursday about you know British Bake Off and various shenanigans uh, with its replacement on the BBC. Um, so now obviously you know popular culture and entertainment has been a big part of it. But as you say, the actual the, the stuff you could you could point out and saying is actively political um, is quite limited, and is often more I think in a, a kind of um, in a in a sort of elite anti elitist vein than I would remember. Yeah, it's kind of you know the, yeah the, I mean I don't want to sort of downplay how disgusting some of its politics has been like you know with it, the Islamophobia and you know it's still very clearly aligned to the uh, the hard right of the Conservative Party but it's also yeah I mean the politics is kind of light and I didn't I didn't find it as sort of repellent as it I have on some other occasions where I've read it actually it, it did seem sort of a bit yeah kind of I mean it's less boring than the Evening Standard I think which I just can't read I just find it so tedious, but it's not like it doesn't feel a sort of uh, 
ferocious. And there, there is a sense, I think, that it sort of feels a bit out of touch. And I, the one story that I, I, I picked out, um, which I thought really symbolised this, right, was it's tucked away on page 11 on Wednesday. The main thing on page 11 is a picture of a Victoria secret model, an underwear um, model, um, and there's a, there's a, a man applying um, moisturiser to her. Yeah. And this pops up again in Rod Liddell's column where he sort of says, oh, nice job if you can get it. Um, I was working in a glue factory at that age, you know, whereas young people these days are all smearing, um, you know, half-naked models with moisturiser. So that pops up again. But in the corner of that page on, on Wednesday, you have an article, it's, the headline is Stakes a Bit Turf. Which again doesn't really make sense. But anyway, this is how it goes. Trendy gastropubs face a backlash from diners from serving meals on turf, ashtrays, trowels, and roof tiles. We Want Plates is trending on Twitter in a push for a return to basics. Right? I don't, do you know We Want Plates? Uh, it's been on Twitter for like, I don't know, like two years or maybe more. Right. I mean, so it's basically they post pictures of stuff like, you know, you go to a pub and they do the sort of um, Hessony style gimmicky stuff about, yeah. you know, you'd serve like, um, food, or, I don't know, like in, like you know, like gravy in a in a beer can to go with your chicken, or like there was one where they had sort of hung bacon on washing lines or whatever, like trying to do sort of gimmicky presentations for food. Sure. And then this Twitter account has just been posting them yeah, for to, ages, to and, and they're it, yeah. quite a popular Twitter account. Yeah. What's weird about it is this article is based on We Want Plates trending, right? Yeah. And then the next line says the morning advertiser Pub Trade website said. Gastro pubs and hipster bars have stolen our place, and people are not at all happy. We One Place has had more than a thousand contributions. So it looks to me like the Sun has got this story from the Morning Advertiser, a pub trade, which its own story is based on a Twitter handle that has been trending. You know, for I mean, I don't know when it started, but I mean, at least a couple of years or something. Yeah. Which has now found its way into a Sun article. I just think it just sort of shows how. You know, we were saying earlier about the way in which the sun has sort of lost kind of touch with, uh, yeah, the sort of technologies of uh, media and popular culture. It really sort of symbolised it. They're like, oh, my God, they're getting the news about what's trending on Twitter from a trade publication. You know, the most dreary of all the um, outlets. Right. And, and um, I mean, this brings us to the issue of um, semi-naked ladies, um, which is yeah. was always a staple of the sun. Um, and gave it, I think, some of its kind of, um, something of its sort of libertarian frisson in the 80s. Um, and if you look at, if you look at the sort of, um, cheesecake images that you find in the sun now, they'll often be drawn from the internet, and they'll credit, they'll, they'll call people, you know, they'll call the models things like Instagram beauties, and it's clear yeah, that they're yeah, that. they're licensing images of um, uh, of these models, um, and part of the licensing agreement will be that they'll reference their Instagram account. So there's a sense that the content is increasingly being drawn from online. It's a, it's presumably a very cheap and efficient way of getting um, uh, print ready content um but it again it, it it sort of hints at this sense that the sun is no longer the prime mover in in the culture that it once was and that it's actually drawing yeah. on and becoming kind of parasitic on 
um, the trends in technology and media consumption which are also killing it. Um, yeah, that, I mean, there's one, I'm just looking at a, a page on Wednesday where, yeah, you've got the page-free um, model, um, former Glamour Girl, Ryan Sugden, and it says at the end of the article, on Monday she tweeted, uh, eight days smoke-free, da-da-da-da. Uh, so it's, it's just, uh, you know, mentioning what she posted on Twitter, so she's obviously got her own media presence. And then underneath that, you've got a story about Anne Robinson, um, you're a member of the Weakest Link fame, yeah. Um, who's, who's joined Tinder, um, and it's about an, a document. It's based on a document, BBC documentary about um, about her using the the app, and and that's been changed into a news story. So it's got a sort of combination of yeah, limited sort of news sources, and then a kind of. Um, yeah, like the sort of whole uh, cultural production of sort of stories and publicity and the rest of it has sort of fallen away a bit from the sun itself. Yeah, and I think you can see that in, you know, like if you think about the dynamics of production for page three images, they would have, they would have had their own, as it were, this sort of assembly line where every day they would have a new girl, you know, photographed by a sun photographer or by an, an, an Asian photographer working for the sun, they would have been generating their own content and would have had a degree of, of um, authorial control, right, about the kinds of uh, images they were generating um, in, that, in that genre. And now they, they're really going with what's trending on Instagram, I guess. Or they're yeah. following the lead of the various sort of talent agencies who will be, you know, will be offering up content um, in order to get ex exposure for their clients' um, social media presence. So um, on Monday, she tweeted, eight days smoke-free and the temperature is so relaxing, hashtag smoke-free zone. That's an invitation to readers to follow her on Twitter, presumably. Um, and that yeah. would be part of the deal um, that got, you know that would be part of the arrangement they would have made with her with her agent. On the opposite page, on page two on Wednesday, you've got Corb Purge. I noticed Jeremy Corbyn's top yeah. aides are moving to Labour's HQ to purge the party of his critics. The Sun can reveal. Yeah. Hard yeah. left director of communications is to restructure Seamus Milne is to restructure senior staff and take on an all powerful role at the London offices. I think it's extraordinary that the leader of the Labour Party would want to control the party. <laughs> it seems, I know. What's this problem? It seems an ex like it's an extravagant power grab um, that that um, he would want to have some handle on what goes on in his own party. What right does he have? What right does he have? Uh, this is to Stalinism. be controlling Labour HQ. Clearly, um, they. <laughs> this is no, there's nothing but the hard left trying to take control of the party. Yeah. You know that said though. I was expecting much more left bashing from um, from the Sun. Like they, it was actually, you know, obviously it's like it's anti Corbyn and the rest of it. There's no, there's no, there's virtually no favourable coverage. But then that said, um, I noticed that uh, was it yesterday Rod Liddell's column. Um, so he kind of mentions in the course. Of, I mean, I think Rod Liddell like probably was associated with Labour at one stage um, before becoming a sort of complete out-and-out -out reactionary. Yeah. Uh, Rod Liddell, for people who don't know, was uh, 
was uh, editor of the Today program at, at one stage. But he has this column, um, which I mentioned earlier, which has reproduced this sort of pervy um, picture of a Victoria Secrets model for no particular reason, um, which the Sun had printed the day before. But then oh, no, he, he kind of says, oh, well, he's joking. complaining about the railways. And then he says, oh, let's nationalise them. You know, I, I think that's a good idea. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um... So it's kind of... I think it's... It's, it's less... It was less hostile to the left than I, than I kind of... Than I thought it would be. Um, but then I... Maybe that's just Rod Little having slightly odd politics. I don't know. Well, I think as well that they probably felt that they'd shot their bolt in the election. Um, and they must be aware of that they can't piss off their readers too much. And I guess... In this time of the year, there's no real reason to do a lot of political coverage. So, um, if you know a few Corbyn bashing articles here and there is probably as much as their readers will tolerate, I suppose. Um, Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party wants the network nationalised. Not a bad idea at all in my book. Better still if it was mutualised, with passengers and staff having a say in how the thing was run. That's that's uh, that's Rod Little's take on. Uh, the railways, and he's got, he's got this uh, this picture of um, of uh, the transport uh, um, secretary uh, up here. What's his name? Chris Grayling. Right. Um, sort of mocked up as the fat controller. Chris Grayling, former and, BBC um, man, I think. Um, yeah, and um, it says not a chance of that happening. Only the Chris Grayling above the board controller. LOL. <laughs> Um, I mean, maybe you know, maybe they're they're coming round to um, rail nationalisation. Um, what this? Yeah, um, but there's also there was also that uh, piece I think the day before about rail chaos on the day that fares were hiked. Um, yeah. So yeah, on the whole, oh, one one other thing I want to mention: I took a copy of it to a dinner party um, on Wednesday, uh-huh. and only one person. I waved it about as a sort of scientific experiment to see how people would respond. Only one person out of six asked me to put it away. Um, and there was a sort of polite sort of curiosity about why I brought it there. But at the end of the evening, it had found its way into the recycling bin. So I think yeah. there's still quite a lot of hostility to the sun. Um in into the, the core bin waters. with it. Into the core bin, exactly. Yeah, or the core bin. Core bin the sun. Core bin the sun. Um, so that I don't know uh, whether what we can whether we can write that up as an academic paper or not. I don't know, Tom. I don't know what um, academic protocols are like. It's an ethnography, Dan. It is. Isn't it? I, I'll do the method section, and um, <laughs> you can you have to describe the whole scene in more detail, but. Yeah, I mean, there is a course like that entrenched hostility sun. I mean, for good reason. You know, it's, it's a disgusting paper, really. I mean, you know, for in in Liverpool, of course, like you know, there's a tradition of um, of uh, boycotting the sun. But uh, you know, the, the one of the reasons actually that um, page three now doesn't have topless models on was there was a an active campaign against it, um, and so that's something that's changed from up until fairly recently. Um, and yeah, it, it's still, of course, like the most, uh, widely read, um, it's still got the highest readership of any national daily, although it's, you know, it's now looking like it's neck and neck more or less with, um, the Metro in terms of circulation. So it's still, 
it still seems to be significant, doesn't it? Um, but I, I agree with you that there's, you know, that well, there's a, I think, a justified hostility towards it, and it would seem to be um, waning in terms of its political power, without a doubt. Yeah, and I think there's an, there's an interesting sense that its political power and its cultural power um, always fed into one another and to some extent depended on, on one another. Um, and yes, there's been social change and it, it's hard to sort of untangle the, the impact of, sort of general changes in society and, the, and changes in the technology of, of communications. Um, essentially, I think what's happened with the newspapers is that they have been um, disintegrated by the force of technology in the sense that the the classical newspaper was a was a collection of of features and of styles and um, genres if you like of news coverage uh, which had been assembled over a long period of time and had become part of the accumulated craft of a um, of a profession or of a trade of newspapermen and women and now if you want to look at pictures of pretty girls uh, you can do that on the internet in an as it were unadulterated form if you want to read horoscopes you can do that on the internet in as it were an unadulterated form if you want sports coverage you can go on the internet and find it if you want stories about serial killers you can find it in the and so the internet i think has taken what had been a honed collection of styles of content and has disaggregated them online and added them to everything else. And it's very difficult to see how The Sun or any other newspaper can cope with that process of disaggregation. Um, I, yeah. think, I think it is a, it's a terminal threat in a way um, because... It's uh, about like a very retro week for that reason to me. Do you think that... I mean, you just said it was terminal. Will, will the sun be around in another ten years? Do you think? I think it may well be a free sheet. You know, I think it, it may like the brand may well have some longevity. Um, but I think that the, I mean, on on current trends, um, that it's really not that many years. I think before it ceases to be a national newspaper that that you find for, as it were, for sale, uh, in retail. Um, yeah, I was, I, you're right. I mean, I think it's, it's hard to see that, um, this sort of model can, I mean, to me that can survive. I mean, um, as I understand it, there's, you know, once the sun's gone back online, it's had some success there. So, you know, maybe that will be the future of it, but it just seems to me like, like you say, that the, the sort of, um, pastiche of different, sort of stories and like visual content that the sun's presenting is just so much more ready available online and a much better or unadulterated uh, form than than i mean there always be a place for this for a physical newspaper but i mean often it's you know it'll be yeah i mean if you're commuting for example but you know now with smartphones so you, even then you know it's not you know even the place something like the metro um Seems like the market for that has shrunk. Yeah, I think yeah, I think it is increasingly marginal, isn't it? Um, Mm. Yeah, I so 
uh, yeah, it's hard to see. It's hard to see it surviving for you know much more than a than a decade um, in, in in anything like its current form. And I think that you know, I mean, you look at the Daily Mail. The Daily Mail has been very successful online, but it's finding its footing in a in a world dominated at the moment, particularly by Facebook. Um, but that you know will in the future, I think, almost certainly be dominated by various social media platforms. Um, and obviously, you know, they they remain they remain bodies of expertise in certain ways. Uh, they rem- they remain sort of they they remain an active part of a kind of process of transmission from a celebrity on a beach to a smartphone, um, and they can monetize some some element in that in that process. So. Uh, the, as brands, I think they may well they may well survive online. They may well survive as free sheets as well, or some sort of combination of the two. But um, but I think we're certainly seeing the that the, the, their end as a as as a media form close to being, as it were, hegemonic um, in in British society, which is a major change. Um, and and yeah. I think it does. You know, I think it does. You know, I think it, it should prompt some reflection from the left as to why it was for so long uh, so much of the media was so far to the right of the population. Um, was it all the fault of liberals? Yes. Um, but, um, but and also I think to think, you know, very carefully about the new media ecology that's emerging and, and how we can ensure that it doesn't um, reproduce the the world of the newspapers in, in, as it were, a different format. I mean, I would I would imagine that News International is having a lot of conversations with Google and Facebook and trying to find its footing in this in this new media ecology. Um, and you know, Murdoch and the company that he created, they are great survivors. You know, they made the transmission. Yeah. The transition, sorry, from newspapers into cable television in the United States, uh, and that's a whole other conversation about Fox News and its trajectory. But they they yeah. were extremely effective, I think, at tabloidizing um, cable television. Um, it would be wrong, I think, to to write them off as as a crew. You know, these are these are serious people. Uh, in the sense that they are, they're very good at turning um, people and readers into money, um, and they yeah. will they will try and find an accommodation with Google, in the same way they found an accommodation with Thatcher, same way they found an accommodation with Reagan. Um, they will work with whoever uh, they have to um, to remain viable. I think we have been speaking very good. now well, for. One hour and twenty-five minutes. So we have indeed we've gone well, well over, which is why I was about to say that seems like a uh, a good note to to end the show on. This probably we are seeing the, uh, the setting of the sun, um, but maybe not. Certainly not the uh, the end of News International and and their ilk. So obviously, Dan and I will be discussing the future political economy of. Uh, of the media and other shows, and we are also going to, in the future, be reviewing some other um, 
legacy media, aren't we? So uh, yeah, I think it, there'll I, be more of that in future shows. I think it's good to think of it as a kind of long kiss goodbye um, to these uh, legacy media institutions. Yeah. Yes, yes. Okay, well, thanks very much, Dan, and uh, we will see everybody next week. Goodbye. Cheers. Seize them.